0: Morning, everyone. I found myself listening more than singing loud as you were singing. And for those of you who don't like to sing out loud in groups, I get it, but I could still see in your eyes that you love Jesus. I mean, that's just not rote singing, it had all sorts of heart attached to it. And it caused me to say in my own heart and mind again we not only think this stuff we really believe it we have learned that that God loves us despite ourselves and God has done everything we need to live with him forever um, I so, so it's not like you come here and it's kind of formal classical or anything it's just like hearts are just breaking forth I, I would hope that those of you who are still investigating Christianity, uh, curious, or maybe just church attenders but never, not Jesus lovers, I, I would hope you see from what you just experienced that there's really more to life with God than I've had. And I want you to know at the end of the service today, I'll actually give you an opportunity to start a personal, forever relationship with Jesus Christ. He loves you he wants that we had nearly 45 people make public decisions of faith in the last hour and we are praying the same thing will happen here many of you will come to living vibrant faith in jesus christ along those lines also we are going to put a slide up it's called scatter now i'm speaking not to those of you that are wondering about god but those of you who know him and love him and wish with all your heart you could help other people know him too uh... we're gonna have a one day conference called scatter where we all can learn in about eight hours how to be much more effective confident and loving in helping people know jesus this is my personal invitation to you to come we're putting this together we've got four other local churches joining us in it i'm praying for a thousand people to be sitting in this room that day so you can Find out how you can help people know Jesus better. Come to Scatter. We've got a table out across from the uh, bookstore. If, you, if you're say I'm in on this thing, March 18th, then you can even sign up and register today. But I hope you'll come. All right. Well, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting week in the United States of America. Uh, lots has happened. And I was home on Friday working on my sermon, but paused for a while to, to watch the inauguration and the hundreds of thousands, uh, uh, however many it was. And then I didn't even know what was going to happen yesterday. And, and, uh, and then I saw the same thing. Uh, hundreds of thousands, millions, billions, uh, perhaps. I don't know. But the point is, is it was a clear example of a clash of ideologies. <laughs> don't you think? I mean, whoa, what's going on? I mean, triumphant praise on Friday, triumphant praise on Saturday for a lot of different things. Wow. Does it concern you? Doesn't need to. Tell you why. Right now, today, over this 24-hour cycle, there are over 5 million gathering locations throughout this world where nearly one billion people have gathered, because they hold to the great ideology, which we call the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm not worried. <laughs> we look above; He is high above us. He is below us. He is around us, and He is. Uh, I, I memorized Psalm 103 this summer. One of the great lines it says, "He has set His throne in heaven." And he has dominion over all things. I like that. So uh, let, the, let the clash go on. We're going to focus on the better idea, the perfect idea, the big idea, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, we're going we're gonna to study our own clash of ideologies this morning. And uh, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people, but we are talking about two titans of the Christian faith squaring off. The one in this corner, the Apostle Paul. And in this corner, the Apostle Peter. And what takes place on the day we are going to look at had the potential of driving Christianity into being nothing but a Jewish sect or a taking christianity to be god's idea for the whole planet so please open your bibles to galatians chapter two i am not being hyperbolic with everything i just said this is really great stuff chapter two how many of you were with me last week here okay so you this is like an episodic sermon right so you know we left the apostle paul dangling in a basket being dropped from the damascus walls didn't we And I suggested through that that he realized he was a basket case and that he just couldn't get it right either unless he let Jesus be everything for him. And then I said, we're all basket cases, and I sent you home. Okay. Where we're at today in chapter 2, starting in verse 11, is that Paul has come out of the basket. He really is understanding who he is in Christ. He and his teams are reaching... Tons of people, Gentiles, for Jesus in in Galatia and other parts of Asia Minor. And he's in his home church. Before, he went to Jerusalem to be with Peter. Now, Peter has come to Antioch to be with Paul in Paul's home church. And let's start right there. Galatians chapter 2, starting verse 11. Those of you who want to use our Bibles on the seat backs, it's page 1152. Verse 11, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, says Paul, I said to Cephas, or Peter, in front of all of them, You're a Jew, Peter, and yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that, quote, now, you're trying to force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And there's the rub, there's the clash. There's the argument. The gospel, look what he calls it in verse 14, the truth of the gospel. That's the meta narrative. That's the worldview. That's the ideology, the truth of the gospel. And for Paul, the truth of the gospel is this. We are loved and saved by God solely because of his love and not by our works. We can't earn it, we're just giving it. Earned or free, earned or free, earned or free, he'll die fighting for freedom. Peter will too. In fact, if you head back a few years, Peter had his own encounter with God, somewhat similar to what Paul did. It was in a room uh, upper Room in a place called Joppa out on the seacoast. And Peter, who had been a Jew of Jews and had followed all of what I call the rigorous rule-keeping of Judaism, suddenly is confronted by God and God's trying to help Peter to see you're not saved by rigorous rule-keeping. You're saved totally by God's free love called Grace. And God drops a, 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 a big sheet from the sky in front of Peter and there are animals in there that had been forbidden to be eaten by Jewish law and, and God says, take and eat, Peter. Peter's such a serious Jew. He, he reacts to God. He says, no, uh-uh. I have never eaten anything unclean and I never will. And God says to Peter, Peter, don't you dare call unclean what I have said is clean. Take and eat, and with that, God was in Peter's mind shattering the dividing walls of rigorous rule keep- keeping to please God. Now you're saying, so, so did they start believing that there weren't any rules at all? No, 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 no. When it comes to the rules in the Old Testament, which we call the Moral Law, it's there forever. I mean, the calling to not cheat or lie or steal, the call to to not murder, the call to love your enemy as yourself, that lasts forever and ever and ever. But there was a second category of laws that were a part of it, which we call the ceremonial laws, dietary laws, hygienic laws of the Old Testament. These had to do with worship. These had to do with interaction of Jew with Jew. And they were all good as far as they went. But if you will, they were um, a bicycle with its training wheels on. Until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, you could take the training wheels off and ride a free two-wheeler. Which meant a lot of the rules were temporary. But the Jews didn't believe it. Foremost of which was circumcision. So what happens when Paul goes up to Antioch, I'm sorry, when Peter goes up to Antioch, he's having a great time because he's seen the sheep come down from the sky. He's led Romans to the Lord. He's, he's been eating with lots of non-Jews. But then, evidently, some of the highly educated blue bloods from Washington, D.C. I mean, from <laughs> Jerusalem come up to Antioch and these were a bunch of Christians who it was kind of believe in the free grace of God but still obey all the laws become a Jew to be a Christian and and Peter was kind of sucked into it you say why? well the Bible tells us in verse 12 it says he was afraid hard to think of Peter afraid but, but hold it do we have any other illustrations of Peter being afraid? Yeah, three times he denies Jesus on the night he was betrayed. So in Peter's character, he, he you know he 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 can get afraid. But I think it's more. I I I think that Pete, I, This is a guess. This is a psychological guess, you guys. Peter was a fisherman he was a fisherman who loved God and tried to obey every law until he met Jesus and then he just wanted to do anything he could with and for Jesus regular guy you've got some pretty high-powered intelligentsia coming up from Jerusalem summa cum lads and you got to struggle with some inferiority stuff maybe that was part of it insecure Uh, afraid, or maybe the fear was he had worked so hard to, be, to build, if you will, a political spiritual alliance between Jews who had come to believe in Jesus and Gentiles who had come to believe in Jesus. It, it weighed on nobody more than it did on Peter, and he realizes how fragile it is, and it could fall apart in a moment's notice. I don't know what it was that made him do it. He stopped eating with Gentiles. Separated himself as if he was following old Jewish ceremonial law. Even Barnabas got caught up in it and started separating himself from brothers and sisters. I don't know, but I know Paul went ballistic. And thank God that he did. It says to us here, He'll confront him face to face, verse 11. It says to us here in verse 14, I said to Peter, in front of everyone. And the essence is, what are you doing? Are you asking Gentiles to start following all of the laws we couldn't keep ourselves? Peter, this isn't right. I will say this. Peter learned. Peter was brought back to the truth of the gospel. Thanks be to God for the wounds of trusted friends who make us whole. And thanks be to God that church didn't become a sect of Christianity on that day, but instead robustly preached throughout the world only by grace in Jesus Christ. Through faith can a person be approved of God. I'm grateful for it. Now, a word or two on this thing of confrontation. Hope it's helpful to you. We're all called to do this as Christians. If you're a Christian, you're called to become someone who will at times need to confront other Christians. I call it, however, not confrontation, but care confrontation. And let me get into it in a moment here why is this necessary I'll tell you why it's necessary because no man or woman is an island and sin and Satan seduce us to think wrong is right far too much I need people to look me in the eye and say nope here's another reason it isn't just sin and Satan it's that none of us are we're all kind of dumb when it comes to ourselves i've got blind spots all over the place and Marie will point pointed out to me and i'll go really and she'll go yes or i might go ha, ah. we all have blind spots we desperately need others okay um and and if we don't then then sometimes we just put up facades we know what is wrong and we hide it and we cover And so we need to be care-fronted. But it needs to be done in love. Get your heart right before you go to try to make someone else right. And and so I've practiced this pretty well. Not always, but pretty well for the last 30 or 40 years when I know I have to go talk to somebody about something they have said or done or I've seen that isn't godly. I say, Lord, show me once again how broken I am so that I go in humility, not superiority. It really helps. It really helps. I know this. The Bible says, Proverbs 27, 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Thank goodness for the wounds Paul did on those days, which not only brought Peter back to his senses but kept the church on its path amen all right now why is this so important to Paul don't think of it as just the eating or not eating it was really saying that the whole Judaic law has to be kept if you're going to be a Christian okay why did that trouble him so much well look at verse 15 through 21 here we go We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. All right, here he goes. He is going to expose the grand idealistic lie And the lie is that the only way you get the approval, the affection, the acceptance of God is by being good enough. Earned. And Paul says, that's never worked for us. It ain't gonna work for anybody else. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You've simply been given it as pure extravagant gift the love of God uh, this concept of earning God's love is the fundamental principle of every religious system in the world except for New Testament Christianity it's everywhere it's in Islam, it's in Hinduism it's, it's tied into Buddhist philosophical beliefs it's, it's everywhere earn it, earn it, earn it Earn it, earn it, earn it. It's everywhere. Hey, and it even goes beyond religions. I think it's, it's down deep in all of us, just the way we are. It's obeying the law with a little eye. It's, it goes on in me all the time. And it constantly creates guilt. I, I constantly am struggling with saying, I shouldn't have done that. I just don't deserve God's love. Why in the world am I a pastor? How did, if, they, if they really knew. Does that stuff ever go on in you? Yeah, it's it's like a compass in me. Breeding guilt, breeding shame. It's there all the time. God wants to eradicate it, not from only your religion, but from the depths of your soul. When we talk about freedom, we're talking about human beings who know they're loved even when they're bad. I am flawed more than I've ever imagined. But... I am loved more than I've ever dreamed by God. Paul's going after this. Every society needs to. Listen, this is a tough one. Uh, uh, but what Paul's essentially saying in verse 15 is we who are Jews by birth, he says, he's, he's essentially saying this hey, listen, we tried this rigorous rule keeping for 1,500 years. <laughs> Why would we ask anyone else to try to do it? Didn't work for us. Okay? It just doesn't. Now, again, uh, Satan will do everything he can to cause you to think that that's true. That the only way to be loved by God is to be good enough. And it's a total fabrication. Remember, he is a liar and the father of lies and there is no truth in him. So Paul wants to break down this lie once and for all. He wants the pure, wonderful gospel. The pure, wonderful gospel. Man, if I, if I thought I could make it by my goodness, boy, <laughs> I would never get close. All right. Now look what he says in that verse 16 again. Three times in 16, one time in 17, and one time in 21, he uses the word which we put in the English as justified. Justified, it's a great biblical term. This is Paul's first analogy to try to break through your problem and mine of thinking we must earn it. He says, no, justified is God saying not guilty. It's not even God saying, I pardon you. It's God saying, not guilty. You say, well, how could God say to Lot or to you or to me, not guilty for all the wrong things I think and do? God has to do something about it. You say, I I, I try to be as good as I can. You'll never be good enough. Incidentally, Jesus actually throws fuel on the fire on this goodness thing. I mean, essentially, before Jesus just tried to do the right actions to obey all the laws, Jesus comes along and says, oh, it's much deeper than that. Jesus says, you know that the law says don't commit murder. Well, I tell you, if you're even angry with a person, it's the same as murder. Jesus says, the law says thou shalt not commit adultery. I say, if a man even looks at a woman... With lust, or vice versa, it's adulterous. What did Jesus do? He took to the law to a whole new level. It's not just actions, it's words, and it's even your thoughts. Oh my gosh! Who can stand under that? Hey, let's imagine when you came in, just imagine this we had a great big hat out there, and we asked you all to put in your name, and we said, We're gonna have a drawing. And then the hat was brought down to me, and I take the big hat here, and I say, I'm going to pull out a person's name, and you are the winner. We're going to take every thought that you've had over the last 24 hours and put it up here on the screen. Right? No, thank you. Amen. No, thank you. Well, when you get into rigorous rule-keeping, thinking that that's what pleases God, that's how far you go. You can't stand under it. God knew that. And so God declares not guilty, even though you are. (laughs) How does he do that? By taking the infractions of all of our sins to himself on the cross. Every vile thought every horrendous action, every vile word he takes. He takes it. It's not in you. You're not responsible for it anymore. He dies on the cross for your and my sin. So he can declare not guilty. You know about the DNA stuff that we have going now and where sometimes people have been in prison for 20 years but now we have DNA technology that can prove if someone was a part of a crime or something and when the DNA is not there it means the person didn't do it. It's definitive. The Bible is definitive in declaring that God says you're not guilty. Why? Because His DNA is Took all your sin oh the love of God oh the love of God now verses 17 and 18 but if in seeking to be justified in Christ we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin absolutely not if I rebuild what I destroyed then I really would be a lawbreaker okay some of them started saying, okay, so you say it's all about Christ and you've been forgiven for Christ, by Christ and Christ is with you now, but yet you still sin. So I guess that means that, that God promotes sin in you. Paul says, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Paul, Paul says, that's ridiculous. I'm the one that destroyed, that starts to rebuild what's been destroyed. And you and I do that all the time. We allow our flesh and we say yes to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We fall for temptation, et cetera, et cetera. Paul says, it's got nothing to do with Jesus promoting it in me. I'm quite, con- I'm quite able in and of myself without any help from God to sin. Okay, that's in essence what's going on there. Then 19 gets really strong again. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, yet I no longer live. Christ lives in me. So the two words there. Dead, I died to the law, verse 19. And then in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. They're both very strong words, aren't they? Of, of an ending, a finality. You, it says, I am dead to the law. Now this concept of dead to the law, uh, dead to sin, it, it's got massive meanings. Here are a few of them. The first is this. When, When he's saying I am dead to sin or dead to the law, I am dead to the lie that I had to keep the law to be saved. I'm dead to it. It can't condemn me anymore. It doesn't exist in God's economy. Dead to it. Secondly, I am dead. I am dead to guilt. When guilt rises up inside me, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. When shame barks at me. Not only you're, you've done bad, you are bad. There's no good in you. When that stuff comes, I can just say in Jesus Christ, I am dead to that lie. Now it still hits us at times, doesn't it? But the truth is, it's gone. Dead to guilt. Oh, to be released from that. Oh, to be released from that. You know, sometimes we think if I, if I could just be good enough, be good enough, good enough. Man, I, uh, I really believe that when Jesus Christ takes over your heart, you move from not only dead to certain things, but a new kind of life rises in you. That's what it says right there. Uh, um, I, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I might live for God. That's why I call this section Wanted. Dead and alive. (laughs) Okay, so dead to the lie that the law saves me. Dead to the guilt and shame that would rise up inside my soul. Dead to sin's penalty because sin and the breaking of the law equals death. The wages of sin is death. But who took that death? Jesus did. I am dead to the penalty of the law to kill me. And I'm even dead to its power over me. Sins. Yeah. I, I, you know, I still remember when I first became I, I um I grew up in a blue-collar home with a with a dad who was a World War II veteran and was a bombardier o- over Germany. Dad's language was not always pure. I grew up in that world. And 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 it just was, was just as easy for me to swear as it was to not swear. I swear to you. Uh, when I came to Jesus Christ, one of the first things that started happening to me is I when when I would you know blankety blank blank I go ooh ooh, and especially the Lord's name oh, and I realized there was something happening inside me that was taking it over, and honestly, it's not a problem for me any longer almost always Uh, you know if i hit my head on the door or something or nail (laughs) i'm amazed what might still flow but it's quite rare now for that to happen why because Christ lives in me. There's a new level of living that's in me, that's coming. Why? Because Christ died for our sins, but he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, all of his power and his glory was then given to us because he says, I am with you always after the resurrection. So, so it's, a, it's a dying, but it's a living. It's a dying, but it's a living. I just absolutely love it. Verse 20, probably my favorite verse uh, of the whole uh, book of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. I am dead to all those things. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, anyone here seen Rogue One? Hands up, please. Okay. Really? Good. How about this section over here? Rogue One? Okay. More people on the far right have seen Rogue All right. Okay, it's, it's the latest Star Wars deal, and I got to see it this week. And uh, there, there's, there's a character in there. The guy is so cool. I'm quite sure whoever the screenwriter was for Rogue One, that they knew about Galatians 2.20. Only they're gonna interpret it as the force. There's this guy called Shirut Karut and he's this cool guy who's blind, and yet he's a warrior par excellence and he's a good guy he's got goodness flowing out of him and and he's always he's walking around all the time and here's what he says I'm one with the force and the force is with me I'm one with the force and the force is with me he's walking around people think he's nuts because they know he's blind I one with the force and the force is with me but he never walks off the edge and he's this warrior. He's got these war- uh, all of these dun, 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 people coming at him all the time. And, and he can't see them, but he just battles them with his stick. And he always wins. I mean, even, even the sabers, even their... <orithmic music> I am with the force, and the force is with me. I am with the force, and the force is... It's really cool. Well, that's what it is in Jesus Christ. You're not just dead to the old person. There's a new life in you, and you're not your own. You're not alone anymore. Christ is in you, if you know Jesus. And wrong starts to become right, and capacities improve. And it ain't you, it's God in you. There is in me a me that is greater than me, and yet I'm authentically me. I I am sure they got that from Galatians 2.20. Because we can say, every one of us, I'm one with Christ, and Christ is with me. I'm one with Christ, and Christ is with me. I didn't earn it. No way possible. It was just sheer gift. Forgiveness and the impartation of his own life into our lives. woo I'm one with Christ, and Christ is with me. Wow. Aren't you ready for that in your life? Let me speak to two groups of people now. One, to those of you who who know Jesus. He lives in you. The problem we have is amnesia. I read this great story this week of Margaret Thatcher. Remember, she was the um, prime minister of England. That one time, the great prime minister went to this home for the aged, and she was walking around greeting all of the people in their beds and such. And she would leaned down and she goes, Hello, how are you? And, and they'd just be in awe that this is the prime minister. And, and she went up to this one person, Hello, how are you? And the woman just kind of looked at her vacuous. Probably some dementia stuff going on. Just kind of looked at her vacuous. And the prime minister said, uh, Do you know who I am? And the woman looks at her and goes, No, dearie, I don't. But you might ask the nurse. She's very good with those things. (laughs) We don't know who we are. It's amnesia. We forget all the time that we're absolutely, totally loved, no ifs, ands, or buts, to the point where God would take our sin on himself and die for us. And at the same time, he then takes up residency within us so that I am in Christ and Christ is with me so that I enjoy his companionship, his power, his attitude toward life more and more all the time. That's where we can get to. So Christians, get rid of the amnesia, come back to the truth. Now, second group of people I want to talk to As I said when I started, those of you who haven't experienced this wonderful forgiveness yet, those of you who have not experienced what it is to have Christ living with you and in you, aren't you tired of trying to get God's affection, acceptance, and approval by rigorous rule-keeping, by earning? It's a lie. It doesn't work. God knew you couldn't. And that's why Christ died for you. Wouldn't you like to live in the fresh, free air of forgiveness and begin to live by asking Jesus Christ to live in you? If there are some of you here that are at that point, I've written a prayer for you. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read the prayer And I'm just going to ask that you ponder it as we sing one final song. And then after that song, I'll come up again and pray it for those of you who want to pray it. And then I'll ask you to respond to me if you prayed it by raising your hands so that I can literally bless you all across the room. Don't you want this in your life? Here's the prayer. God, I'm sorry for all my sins and living life my way rather than yours. Thank you for your overwhelming gift of love by dying in my place and offering me a relationship with you forever. I give my life to you today. If that prayer expresses the desire of your heart, I'll lead you in in praying it in just a couple of moments. But now, let us sing our thanksgivings to God.